It's Wednesday, August 3rd. I'm Pam Jones. Maryland health officials say they will press for more monkeypox vaccines, but for now, we'll keep the limited supply for those most in need. The state's COVID-19 positivity rate is now above 12 percent. Baltimore's mayor outlined his violence prevention plan for residents who participated in National Night Out. An indictment on a first-degree murder charge means a 15-year-old squeegee worker's case will remain in adult court for now. I'll have those headlines and more, plus a look at the economic and social cost of those incarcerated in Maryland's state prison. It's the Daily Dose from WIPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Maryland health officials say the first shipment of its monkeypox vaccine will be reserved for high-risk groups. Governor Larry Hogan has been pressing the federal government to provide more vaccines, but he has not followed other states which have already declared it a health emergency. The 129 cases of monkeypox confirmed in Maryland in recent weeks represents just over 2 percent of the country's total infection. Still, state officials say they continue to press federal sources for the limited doses. When it comes to new cases of COVID-19, Maryland health officials say there are just over 1,500 in the last 24 hours, and that is lower than it has been the last few days. The state's positivity rate, however, is now exceeding 12 percent, and the number of those in area hospitals are at 621. On Tuesday night, the 500 block of Wilson Street was buzzing with a crowd of Baltimore residents and law enforcement officers who gathered for National Night Out. The yearly event began in 1984 to bring law enforcement officers and community members together. WIPR's Bethany Raja reports. This year, there have been over 200 homicides in Baltimore. Surrounded by members of multiple law enforcement agencies, Mayor Brandon Scott laid out the three pillars of his comprehensive violence prevention plan. Public health approach to violence, number two, community engagement and interagency collaboration, and of course, uh, evaluation and accountability. Baltimore resident Daniel Wise said he was there in honor of his sister. I'm here because my 13-year-old sister was murdered in 2017. She was shot five times by people I knew. Baltimore City Police Commissioner Michael Harrison said for law enforcement, National Night Out was the best night of the year. Bethany Raja, WYPR News. Baltimore County's executive and council members would get a pay raise if legislation introduced this week is approved. The county executive's annual salary would increase from $175,000 to $192,000. Council member salaries would increase about $7,000 to $69,000. The council chairman's salary would also go up $7,000 to $77,000. The council is expected to vote on the proposed raises September 6th. Now that Baltimore County State's Attorney Scott Schellenberger has won the close Democratic primary, he faces his first Republican opponent in the general election in 12 years. WIPR's John Lee reports Schellenberger's Republican challenger says he can bring needed change to the office. James Haynes is 72, a retired lawyer and a former Maryland Assistant Attorney General. He says he plans to run an active, thought-provoking campaign. The voters of Baltimore County know that Scott was elected in 2006. Here we are in 2022. 
the first question that they need to ask themselves is whether they feel safer now than they did in 2006. Haynes says if elected, his office will be nonpartisan. Everyone will receive equal treatment. Haynes calls the bruising Democratic primary that Schellenberger won over Robbie Leonard an intramural hair-pulling contest between two factions of the party. Haynes says he's offering something better than that. Schellenberger did not return a request for comment. John Lee, WIPR News. Baltimore County Executive Johnny Olszewski today announced the second departure from his executive staff in weeks. His chief of staff, Patrick Murray, is leaving in September. Drew Vetter, his deputy administrative officer, resigned several weeks ago. A spokeswoman for the county executive says neither Murray nor Vetter was asked to leave. A 15-year-old squeegee worker was indicted Tuesday as an adult on the charge of first-degree murder in the killing of 48-year-old Timothy Reynolds last month. Bethany Raja has that story. Today's indictment doesn't necessarily mean that the boy's case will remain in adult court. The boy's attorney, Warren Brown, said after the indictment that he plans on filing a motion to transfer the case to juvenile court. That will spawn an investigation um, a report will be written, um, and then there'll be a judge that decides whether to send that case to juvenile court or to retain it in the adult system. Brown said he was disappointed with the grand jury's decision. They had not indicted him on first degree, and, they, and uh, then they would, would go immediately to juvenile court. So now, you know, we got to, you know, fight to have him sent to juvenile court, and there's no guarantee that's going to happen. Brown said he plans on filing the motion to transfer as early as tomorrow. Bethany Raja, WYPR News. Prisons are costly, not just the cost of keeping someone incarcerated, but a new report shows the cost to families and communities. New census data reveal the lopsided burden on some communities like the southern eastern shore, Hagerstown, and most acutely Baltimore City that's created by those incarcerated in Maryland's state prison. The report, produced by the Justice Policy Institute and the Prison Policy Initiative, is titled Where People Come From the geography of mass incarceration in Maryland. Keith Wallington, the Institute's Director of Advocacy, joined on-the-record host Sheila Cass today to talk about the findings. This report gives us a very clear picture of where individuals are from who are incarcerated in Maryland and what neighborhoods are most impacted by the justice system. Um, This allows for us to do a much deeper analysis of the communities. Um, and neighborhoods who send the most people into the criminal justice system. And the report also paves the way to examine the root causes of justice system involvement for communities impacted by the justice system. And as uh, folks will see in the report, Baltimore, who only represents 9% of the overall state population, represents 40% of the prison population. Baltimore uh, is not the only uh, area that disproportionately sends folks into the into the justice system, but it is felt mostly in Baltimore by Baltimore residents. And it's important to note that of the 40% of individuals who uh, are from Baltimore in the justice system, uh, one out of three of them come from 10 neighborhoods. 
So this report, again, allows us to kind of peel back the curtains on those neighborhoods and look at, you know, kind of some of the root causes of involvement. How does Maryland's level of incarceration compare to other states? Well, Maryland in, uh, incarcerates a smaller portion of its residents in other states, but the uh, Maryland, I will say, leads the entire nation in racial disparities in its justice system. Um, African Americans in Maryland make up only 30% of the overall population, but make up about 72% of the prison population, which is worse than, uh, those dis racial disparities are worse than any other disparities in the country. What we have to note is that the impact it has on certain communities, it is really concentrated uh, in the Baltimore area. The Baltimore city um, has seen the, the largest number of individuals going into the system, but they also see the largest number of individuals returning home. And in many cases, individuals are going back to these same neighborhoods that you know they, were, uh, they, they come from, which are neighborhoods that have seen sustained uh, investments in the justice system at the expense of other needed investments. I want to get into that more with you, but let me just pick up first. The report found that Baltimore City has, as you said, the highest incarceration rate in the state, one of every 100 residents locked up in state prison. Within Baltimore, where do these people come from? So we know um, that one out of three of these individuals come from 10 neighborhoods in Baltimore. You know, uh, obviously, Rosemont, um, Sandtown, Winchester, those are the neighborhoods who send the most individuals uh, into the justice system. And when you overlay that with uh, neighborhoods like Roland Park, um, you, you really begin to understand where investments are needed to stop the flow of individuals going into those. So, so many of those individuals coming from those neighborhoods going into the justice system. Some of the other Baltimore neighborhoods sending the most people to prison, Southwest Baltimore, Sidonia Frankford, and Bel Air Edison. At the other end of the spectrum, Greater Roland Park, Poplar Hill, Mount Washington, Cold Spring, South Baltimore, and Canton, 10 or fewer people from each of these communities were imprisoned in 2020. As you mentioned, several Eastern Shore counties also have disproportionately high incarceration rates. How high? When you look again, when you look at it like uh, Southern Eastern Shore and Hagerstown, um, you know they are disproportionately affected by incarceration. Not quite to the extent of uh, Baltimore, but those are also neighborhoods. The neighborhoods in the Eastern Shore that are sending the most individuals into the system are also the ones that are uh, historically under-resourced. Wallington says the report's data shows how much of a factor race plays and the ripple effects across communities and families. When you look at the data, it's uh, undeniable that race is a factor. Uh, again, you look at that Maryland, um, African-Americans make up 29% of the overall population, but 72% of the prison population. Um, you can't ignore, you can't not view this through a race lens. So uh, I would say that the answer is very complicated, but it, it is also very obvious that race is a factor when you look at the numbers. What are the consequences of all these missing people from their communities and families? Well, it, it disrupts family life when you have uh, you know, a parent or provider that has been taken from the community. Um, and we also know that youth uh, who have parents who are incarcerated are great. You know, they, they have a, a much greater chance of um, coming in contact with the legal justice system themselves. Um, so the ripple effect is, is huge, and in, 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 in particularly in Maryland um, where 
Uh, we also know a lot of times, you know, when women are uh, going to the system, they go in as heads of household and the, the, the trickle down effect is devastating to, you know, kids and, and entire families and communities. And, you know, a lot of the um, long sentence individuals are also from these same neighborhoods we're talking about. So when you take when, when you're taking away some of the um, stewards of your neighborhood, you know, these are men and women that not like now, for example, you have we have so many men and women, long sentence individuals who are returning home now after spending 30, 40, these incredible number of years in prison, their return home is public safety. You know, it increase, you know, it, it they, they, you have older individuals who experience a system acting as a vanguards of their neighborhoods in, in direct in redirecting youth. Um, who were on, you know, the same trajectory they were on. But um, again, when you disrupt having these individuals in the neighborhood that having the ability to have, you know, influence on those neighborhoods, you're, you're hurting the overall, the development and health of the neighborhood. So it, it's, it's just a huge void when you have so many individuals removed from a community. You can hear the entire conversation on the report by the Justice Policy Institute by going to On the Record at WYPR.org. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Many thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, Shekinah Collier, Bethany Raja, John Lee, Joel McCord, and Kristen Mossbrugger. Our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. If you have a scoop or suggestion for this podcast, my social media hangout is Twitter at That's Pam Jones. So remember to be courageous and stay curious. I'm Pam Jones. Thanks for listening.